You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, 10 years ago, there was a story in the news that was uh, tragically not unlike the news that has come out of Roanoke, Virginia this week. Some of you are going to remember this. There was a man who broke out of a courtroom, violently killed the judge, killed three other people, a fourth person died in Atlanta, Georgia. He was on the run. The city got locked down. Well, unexpectedly, he found himself in a a tired apartment complex holding a woman hostage. Her name was Ashley Smith. Do you remember Ashley? She was the woman who, while she was there through the night with this murderer, fugitive, who was heavily armed, reading to him from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, which is a Christian book. It's a book about Jesus and the purpose for your life. Well, inexplicably, as I had planned this service uh, uh, months ago, actually, it it came to my attention that we had an opportunity to tell the story of Ashley Smith today because my friend Terry Botwick, who's here, is producing her movie, her story as a movie right now. It's coming out this September. Terry and I were interacting. He said, hey, I'm working on this movie. I said, would you come up and tell us a little bit about um, Ashley Smith and what it means to really be captive? Because that's our theme today, that we're all in some sense captive. Now, I want to tell you, Terry Botwick is a wonderful man. We've known each other for um, almost 14, 15 years. He is an elder. It's a Presbyterian elder, so you can trust him, right? <laughs> or, or maybe you don't trust him because of that. But he comes from this church I was referencing earlier in the service down in Los Angeles, Bel Air Presbyterian Church. Uh, Terry, you've had a great career. I mean, you worked with CBS, Candid Camera, Bruce Zorro, the movie, uh, Veggie Tales. You even know Donald Trump, right? So so we're all a couple degrees of separation. We won't get into that today. Uh, But Terry, um, this movie Captive, about a horrible incident, tell us what attracted you to the story, why you're making it into a movie. Well, first let me just quickly say that I, um, in addition to everything George said, am a Jewish boy from New Jersey, and I came to know Jesus in 1975. So, you know, church culture, things like that are sometimes foreign to me, even after 40 years of walking with the Lord, but uh, what is important to me is authenticity with God and how God actually works in our lives. And so um, I told George this has been on my heart lately. When I think about Abraham, for instance, and uh, God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he comes to Abraham and he says, um, and Abraham begins to negotiate with him. And first you think, well, that's kind of outrageous. But then you realize he's a Middle Easterner, and that's what they do. So it's <laughs> not a problem at all. But um, But his question really is, God, if there's 50 or 40 or 30, if there's 10 righteous people, will you blow up that whole place? And underneath that is a deep desire to know who are you for real? What are you really like? And that leads us to the follow-on question of, you know, who are we and what are we really like? And that is resident in um, Ashley's story. When she's held captive by Brian Nichols, you have two broken people. She's been a meth addict. She's lost custody of her daughter. It actually cost her the life of her husband earlier. Brian Nichols is an African-American man who killed four people that day. And when he took her hostage, they found a mutual brokenness. And within that mutual brokenness and need, there gave room for God to do something kind of redemptive instead of it ending 
very bloody. It ended another way. This woman that you see on the screen, this is Ashley Smith. She's here on FaceTime with us from uh, Georgia, and she wants to worship and tell a little bit of her story uh, with you. Ashley, thank you for being here. Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear And thank you, Ashley, for sharing your story with us. This is a very powerful story, and it gives witness to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, You don't know us very well, but our mission at University Presbyterian Church is to share hope in Jesus Christ. And there was a moment, uh, I think you told CNN, while you were being held hostage uh, with Brian, that you felt he needed hope. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what was going on there uh, and, and how you sensed he needed hope and, and what you tried to do about that. Well, I think um, God gave me this way of getting into other people and trying to feel what other people feel. Um, you know, I looked at him and he kept telling me that all he wanted to do was relax and 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 I just wanted to live. And so in a result to do everything that he asked me to do, I began just to look. And I think God began to give me the eyes of Brian Nichols because there was a turning point in my life where um, I was faced with the choice of whether I was going to do drugs or not do drugs. Mm. Um, and I think after I chose not to do the drugs, God gave me the eyes of Jesus so that I could see Brian Nichols. And through that, I was able to give him the hope that he was desiring. That's so interesting. Uh, you, you were in deep trouble that night. He had tied you up, put you in the bathtub. You weren't sure at all that you would live. And yet you had empathy for him. Somehow you identified with him as though he were also uh, in trouble. And you were both in some ways uh, captive. Tell us a little bit about your own story, because this night, you about seven hours, I think you, you, you two were together. Um, this was a turning point in your life. What this was that was about? a huge turning point in my life. Um, I had, as Terry said, lost my husband in 2001 to a murder. Um, and I had gone on a, a very bad downward spiral, choosing just about every drug there was to get their hands on. I did, um, just to try to cover up all the emotions of losing him. And I lost custody of my child and just was in a very dark, bad place. You know, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was seven years old and as a teenager just began to kind of go off on the ways of the world. And so I knew what was right and I knew I wanted to get back to God. I just really didn't know how. Um, I began to read The Purpose Driven Life in, um, in 2001 after going to a church service um, with my aunt and um, I'm sorry, I actually began to read it in 2005, and that's kind of when God began to show up in my life. Um, I had written it, read the book for about 33 days, and um, that's when the whole Brian Nichols story happened. He came into uh, my life when I was going out for cigarettes one day and actually took me hostage coming back home, and uh, the next seven hours was what you guys saw, but it was really a turning point in my life because I really honestly felt like I deserved to die. You know, all of the decisions that I had made in my life, I felt like that is what God um, was going to give me was death. And uh, instead, he gave me a whole brand new life because of the decisions that I made during that night. Wow. 
what a powerful moment for you and for all of us. You're uh, sharing this story so beautifully. When you and I talked on the phone this week, I hadn't yet read your book. I'd read part of it, and I didn't intend to read it, but I got sucked into it as I was preparing for our conversation. Now I've read it. <laughs> it's beautifully written, Ashley. Thank you for sharing your story with us uh, through the book and through the movie. Just one last question. Uh, what do you hope people take away from... Uh, it's a lot of work for you to expose your story this way. Um, you're being very vulnerable with the world. But what, why do you do that? What are you hoping people get out of this? I just want people to know that it's never too late to turn their life around. And there's absolutely we can do to make God not love us. You know, my face was plastered all over the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and in every other magazine and, and newspaper known to man the day after this happened. And for me, all I was was a lonely, widowed, drug addict mom who happened to be saved by Jesus that night. And I began to realize after months and months of after this happened that God gave me a platform to tell the world that he changed me. And so that's why I wrote the book and that's why I allowed the movie to be done in hopes that people's lives would be changed, that they, they would look at me and say, if God did it for her, then he'll do it for me too. Oh my gosh. Ashley Smith, thank you so much for being here today for sure. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley. Um, don't go too far away. We're going to talk to you at our next service as well. By the way, I'm the little guy in the, in the center of your screen. I don't think you could probably make out my face there. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, listen, Terry, if we want to find out more about this movie, what do we do? Three things. Um, September 18th, it opens uh, nationwide, so we would appreciate your support on opening weekend. Opening weekends matter. You can go to the website, captivethemovie.com, and there's all sorts of information there. Or you can text the word captive to the numbers 313131, and then you'll get a reply with a way to get information. Great. Let's say thanks again to Terry for being here today. Thank you, Terry. Um, Ashley Smith was captive. That's, that's her story. But, you know, it's, it's not just a story about being captive to an armed fugitive, is it? I mean, she was captive to her addiction. Interesting thing about an addiction... When you have an addiction, you're captive, but you're also the captor, aren't you? Kind of, and you think about that for a second. Captive to yourself. Now, we're thinking about addiction today because uh, we're studying freedom in Christ. And we've come to the end or towards the end of this great chapter, Galatians 5. And the Apostle Paul has begun the chapter saying, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying resist anything that would enslave you and that would deprive you of the great gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Freedom. That's why he saved you, for freedom, the Apostle Paul says. Now, our definition of freedom is a little bit different than the world around us. Freedom is not the ability to choose to do anything you want to do. Biblically, freedom is the ability to become who you were meant to be. It's to make cho choices that are consistent with who you really are, your true self. And the Apostle Paul knows that you and I will never be free without self-control. We will never be free if we are enslaved to addictions, habits, just recurring patterns of behavior that are destructive. 
So I want to look at self-control with you today. And it's the last of the fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul lists in that great list of what the Holy Spirit will do if we let him unleash his ministry in our lives. The self-control is the last one. But I want to look at that one through the lens of the teaching of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would invite you to pull out your Bible and open to Luke chapter 11. If you didn't bring one, no problem. We got one for you. It's in the rack in front of you. Please open to Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26. A little bit long today. That's on page 845. And while I'm hearing the rustling of pages, if you would mind, would you stand with me? Let's honor the one who inspired this word, our Savior Jesus Christ, by reading aloud together. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out... The one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and house falls on house. If Satan is also divided against himself... How will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I cast out the demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place. But not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Please be seated. I want to look with you at three things this morning. Number one, the complexity of our captivity. Number two, the strength required for freedom. And number three, the practice of self-control, the practice of self-control. Let's start with number one, the complexity of our captivity. We read this passage and we kind of puzzle a bit. The Bible, um, there are demons there, right? And I want you to know the Bible doesn't say a lot about demons. Um, and in fact, the vast majority of where di- demons shows up in the Bible is when Jesus is casting them out in the first century. And I know that today a lot of us don't know what to think about that. We, we hardly b- believe in demons at all. Um, I think it's best to have kind of a, uh, an openness and a lean theology around demons. But I will say this to those of you who just can't accept that idea at all. Here's a definition of demon that you might be able to work with. A demon is something that robs you of life. Because that's what demons did and do. A demon is something that robs you of life. 
Now, I sometimes catch myself when I'm reading about demons in the ministry of Jesus, and I think, well, that must just have been kind of a pre-modern explanation for bad stuff that they couldn't explain. And I think i got to be careful with that. It's a little bit dismissive. It, 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 uh, it's a little bit elitist, in a way, looking down my nose at these first-century people as though they were sort of credulous, credulous or naive. But let me say two things about that, because as we read Luke's witness here, these people, first of all, are not credulous. They don't believe. Did you notice that? They respond to what Jesus is doing, going, this is amazing, deeply troubling, and uh, they come up with an alternate explanation. You know, I think that's what most of us would do, right? We go, oh, I see the data, but, you know, the theory is all whacked. Let me tell you what's really going on there, right? That's what they start doing. Maybe it's Beelzebul. It's just a kind of a loose translation, Lord of the Flies, a Canaanite god, you know? And, uh, and then they say, no, prove it. This is, this can't be God. Prove it. We need a sign. We need a sign. You see that that's what they requested of Jesus. So they weren't credulous or naive. They didn't believe this any more than I would believe it if I had been there. The second thing about that though is that I think in their pre-modern imagination, they had a greater appreciation for the complexity of our captivity, for the complexity of the human condition. And they called it demons. And they, they had this idea that contrary to the way you and I think of it, where everything is kind of reduced because of, of, of our scientific rationality with this like a thin understanding of things. If we can't prove it, if we can't see it, we don't think it exists. Well, contrary to that, in their mind, they looked at the richness of human beings and they said, there are multi-dimensions to the human nature, social, psychological, physical, intellectual, and spiritual. And they think our captivity cuts across all of these dimensions. And so they have a richer understanding, I think, of the powers in which we can find ourselves entangled when we are addicted or habituated. As a girl, Ashley Smith never said to herself, you know, I hope one day I get addicted to crystal meth. I really hope that one day I find myself tied up in a bathtub with a murderer contemplating the last day of my life. She never said that. She grew up in a middle-class neighborhood like you and me. She dressed, they said, like a just attractive, preppy girl, if you could forgive her for that. But she had a, an emptiness in her life, just like you and I do. She tried to run with a fast crowd. Occasionally, those girls would smoke marijuana from time to time, right? No big deal. But she said at the time, she got past them to the people that were actually dealing the marijuana. And they weren't into marijuana. They were doing crack. And so she did crack. And pretty soon, she found herself uncontrollably addicted. And, and captive. Our habits can become our destiny. You're deeply complex. You are. Uh, and your habits cut through your biological, emotional, social, and spiritual nature. William James wrote, all of our life, so far as, as it has a definite form, is a mass of habits. A mass of habits. Some of you have read Charles Duhigg's book, um, The Power of Habit, and he describes the anatomy of a habit, and it's a cycle. And it begins with a cue. It's like a trigger. And then, it, then there's a, a routine. That's like what you do when the trigger. And then there's a reward. It's, it's what you get. So, you know, the, the cue might be a certain time of day, you know, 8.30 a.m. The routine is the run to Starbucks for my second cup that day. It's the routine, you know, and the reward is, oh, the smell when you open that door, right? I'm fine, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be okay. That's the reward. Well, Duhigg says, you work that cycle enough, 
in the center of it is a deep craving that gets deeper and deeper and deeper, this craving that now must be satisfied. And those of you who are brain scientists tell us, this actually changes the chemistry of our brains. It does. Physiologically, that cycle, that craving becomes chemically important to your brain. You are remapping your neurons as you do that. You're changing. So this becomes deeply intractable. The problem of our captivity is extremely... uh, complex. We do lose control. And this is why it's just not helpful when you find a friend who's got addictive behaviors or destructive habits to say to them, stop. Right? (laughs) How many times do we catch ourselves saying that? Oh, you really shouldn't do that. Do you think they don't know? They know they shouldn't do that. They want to be every bit like you are, but they can't. They're captive. And by the way, that's why you shouldn't say it to yourself either. You say to yourself, oh man, I got to stop doing this. I can't do this anymore. I promise I'll never do this anymore. Well, that's a good thing to say to yourself, but you know what? I don't believe it. Because you're too complicated and the problem's too deep. You are captive. We need a savior. This is the complexity of our captivity. And the Bible tells that story. You and I are captive to overeating, overworking, overspending. We obsess with pornography, alcohol, drugs, gambling, Xbox, and dare I say, Game of Thrones. who knows when this mute man stopped speaking? What happened in his life? Maybe he never spoke, but pretty soon that became a pattern. It became an identity. And that's who he was, the mute, because the spirit had become his spirit. The complexity. Let's move, number two, to the strength. The strength required for freedom. Now, notice, it's interesting, our Lord uh, he, there are four things that follow from this healing. Two arguments, because he respects their rationality. So he gives two arguments to convince them that he is who he says he is, God. And then two stories. And Terry's right about the power of story. And Jesus tells stories. So I want to reflect more on the stories here, because my time is limited. Now let's look at these two stories. The first story, I think Jesus is saying to you, here I'm just summarizing the point before I give it to you, I'm pulling you in. I'm pulling you in to a freedom fight. That's, I think, what Jesus is saying. Here's why I say that. Remember, they asked for a sign, and you and I go, Jesus probably didn't give them the sign, right? Well, that's not the way they understood what Jesus was doing when he told this story. When they heard this story, they understood Jesus had given them the sign. Because he said, if the finger of God, if by the finger of God I do this, then the kingdom of God is among you. He's, it's here, right here with you, okay? Now, when they heard finger of God, these Jewish women and men understood Jesus was recalling their Sunday school classes, Saturday school classes, okay? There is a, this is, this is the ancient Exodus Jesus is referring to. You want to look it up? Exodus 8, 19. This is something that the magicians said. So you know the story. God sends Moses because his people are captive in Israel. They got a strong man, the Pharaoh, who's saying, nope, you're mine. But God says, not so much. God's very jealous for his people. He sends Moses to overpower the strong man through these great plagues. Well, Moses comes and the magicians say, show us a sign. We really don't believe this God talk, you know, that you've got. And so Moses throws down his staff and it becomes what? A serpent. And they go, no sweat. We can explain that. In fact, we can even replicate that. And they throw down their staff. They become serpent. I don't know how they do that, but they do. 
And they keep matching Moses' signs, tit for tat, until the plagues themselves start to ramp up. And I think it's like a second or third day, they go, they come running to Pharaoh and they go, this is the finger of God. We cannot do this. We have no explanation for this. Must be the finger of God. And there's this wonderful and horrifying realization, if you're Egyptian in that moment, that, that God has shown up to release captives. By the way, the word exodus, ex-hadas, it means the way out. And the point is, as Jesus stands there before his hearers, is there's a way out for you. See, it turns out this is not just about the mute. This is about you. Jesus is looking in the face of all of his hearers like he'd look at us today. He's like, this is for you. There's a way out for you. Do you believe that? I've come to give you your way out. Ex-hadas. So, the, you know, the idea is that <laughs> the house in this strong man story that he tells is, is not Egypt anymore. It's the world. The strong man isn't Pharaoh anymore. It's the powers of darkness. And the people who are trapped are you and me. But the good news is Jesus is saying there comes one who is stronger. One who is stronger. That's the phrase that Jesus used. There comes one who is stronger, and that's Jesus Christ. He says, I'm here now. The kingdom of God is here. It's near to you. I mean, are you ready to be released? You could step into it today. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying this, this story. This is your sign. This is the strength required for freedom, and Jesus gives it. So he's saying, I'm pulling you into my freedom fight. And then there's another story. He says, I want you to pull me in. He flips it around. The first story is kind of about this, the stronger one, and the second story is kind of about us who need his strength. What you to pull me in? Now, this is, uh, the second story is about an unclean spirit who is um, who leaves a person, and it's just another story he tells. And we don't really know why this unclean spirit, who it was, or why it left. Um, it might have been cast out by Jesus or one of the, their exorcists, so to speak. Or my theory is that it was September. It was time for that unclean one to go to school, and uh, the house was now available for cleaning. And 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 so that's what happens, right? The, the owner of the house starts uh, sweeping, we're told, and organizing everything, cleaning it up. Finally, it's the way it should be. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of effort that goes into that. And finally, this person goes, you know what? I think things are turning around for me. Things are starting to get pretty good because I got the cue and I've got a different routine with this broom here. I can keep sweeping. I'm doing pretty well. But Jesus gives us the self-talk of the unclean spirit. And he's got a different story. Notice that the unclean spirit passing through the waterless places says to himself, that's probably a place where no people are because there's no water. And the spirit says to himself, you know, I think it's time for me to go back to my house. The unclean spirit thinks it's its house, thinks you are its house. And you know what? The point of this story is it's not enough to empty your life of stuff you don't want. you got to fill it with something that's better. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, look, we could do this all day, casting out spirits, but until you come with me, until you fill yourself with me, until my Holy Spirit fills you, you could end up like this guy. Seven times worse than you were when you began. He gives us the lesson, really, in, in verse 23, where he says, whoever is not with me, the point is, it's not good enough to be without the unclean spirit. We have to be with Jesus. It's not enough to put a um, vacancy sign on the, 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 the flashing sign outside your life and say, I no longer have alcoholism. No, you've got to put a no vacancy sign out that says what I have is Jesus Christ. 
What I am is full. Because that changes. See, um, I, I think that second story, the guy, he's got... Uh, um, the cue is there, it's like it'll always be there, but the routine is different. What he hasn't done is given himself a new reward. And Jesus says, I've come to give you life, a new reward. I mean, there's this moment. So let's put both of those stories together. There's this moment for Ashley Smith when she looks at Brian Nichols and she sees two things. She sees on the one hand a strong man. She didn't tell the story. I read it in the book. Her aunt was a Christian in a Bible study. And just before this happened, her aunt has told her, Ashley, we're so sorry for the pain in your life. She's lost custody of her child and her aunt is keeping. She said, my small group prayed for you today that either you will get off drugs or the Lord will call you home. It was like a prayer for mercy. So she's sitting there at the wrong end of a pistol and she's going, this is the answer to her prayer. This is it. They sent the strong man. It's over. That's what's going through her mind. Well, it could have been. But there was a stronger man, one stronger, Jesus. And this is what she said. For me, the money quote, when I talked to her on the phone uh, this week, and she said to me, she said, George, when Brian Nichols came into my apartment, I realized with time that Jesus Christ had taken his body and was coming to me. Jesus Christ was coming to me. She made allusion to this. Brian Nichols asked her that night, do you have any drugs? She wanted with all of her soul to say, no. She didn't want to be in a room with a guy with guns and drugs. But she knew if she said no and he found them, he'd kill her. He'd been already rummaging through her apartment. So she said, yes. And she helped him with them. And then he looked at her across the table and this ice and said, I want you to do it with me. And she said in that moment, it was as though Jesus Christ had taken his body and was saying to me, if you say no to him, I will give you life. I can give you what those drugs on that table could never give you. They promise it, but they could never give it to you. I will give you life. And you know what she said to a guy with a bunch of guns? She said, no. And she has never gone back. That moment broke her addiction. She still says, I'm, a, I'm an addict. And she's in recovery. But that was the moment for her. She had a sense that her kitchen had filled with the presence it filled with a presence. Jesus was pulling her in, and she was now pulling Jesus into all of her life, the fullness of her life. This is why we talk about being alive in Christ here. Because, because Jesus tells us that we're in him, and he asks us to allow him to be in us. Then you're truly alive. It's not about denial. It's about fulfillment. It's not about less. It's about more. See? Let's talk finally about the practice of self-control. I'm going to run out of time here, but I just want to say this. Self-control is poorly named. If you don't write anything else around there, you write the word self-control, and then you cross out the self and cross out the control on your bulletin. Okay? It's a good translation because that's what Paul's, that's the word, self-control. Plato describes self-control as the uh, man being his own master. And that's what it was in that world. But that's not what Jesus is offering us. Okay? Actually, the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses, it doesn't have the word self and it doesn't have the word control in it. It's a mashup of two Greek words, one which is in and the other which is strength. Strength inside of you is really what we're talking about. Internal strength. It doesn't come from you. It's not about self. It comes from the Holy Spirit. 
And it's not about control, it's about strength. So much better than control. You know what, control is part of the problem in our addictions. We're so desperate for control over our circumstances that we grab for any of these kind of fake substitutes to give us a sense of control when actually we're losing control. Jesus is the only one who gives us strength and he gives us freedom. He gives us strength without control. So here's the practice. um, If you're taking notes, and I see that some of you are, write down these three letters um, because there are three parts, I think, to to spirit-filled self-control. And and you write down I-E-A. I don't know what that stands for, but let's say Intergalactic Electricity Agency or Energy Agency, I-E-A. The first part of the practice of self-control is invitation. Okay, if you're going to sweep up your life, if you're going to try and arrange the furniture of your life, Don't do it alone. Do it as a matter of hospitality to invite the presence of the one who says the kingdom of heaven is near. I'm here. I'm here. Invitation. Invite Jesus. Say to Jesus, Jesus, thank you. You are here in my brokenness. Even in my brokenness, in this part of my exasperation, of my desperation, of my need, you're here, Jesus. That's invitation. The second is exaltation. And if invitation is about presence, exaltation is about power. This is where we say, Jesus, I am absolutely powerless. I have made you and me and my loved ones so many promises about this. I finally surrender. I'm powerless. I can't, I can't do it. I surrender to you, though. And I know that you can. That's exaltation. I surrender to your power. Ashley was trying to get... Brian Nichols to surrender all night. And the beautiful thing, you'll see this when you see the movie, is she does. He does. And it's a symbol of her surrender to God that night. And then adoration. This is about priority. Presence, power, and priority. Adoration is saying, I think I've just come to love something that's greater than the things I used to love. This is about reward. Now I love. Now my heart's been broken open with a new set of affections for one who loves me. For the greatest, the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most just, the most wonderful one that there is, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of my soul. By this, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, on the cross of Jesus, God forgave our sins, erased the record of debt against us, and disarmed rulers and authorities. It's a practice. It's uh, not an event. Uh, freedom from addiction is a journey. It's a process, but we are all addicts. Everyone in this room, you look around this room, that's who we are. You don't see anyone who's not addicted to something. Yeah, I see people turning your head. Yeah, him, her, yeah, right. By the way, while you're looking around the room, 70% of the men look at pornography. 30% of you women look at pornography. Um, We are addicts. And we struggle with substances, alcohol. We struggle with drugs in this room, I'm saying. Well, we struggle with working too hard. We struggle with wasting our time. We struggle with any number of things. Some of us are trying to figure out how I can get my out of the patterns that have destroyed my relationships because I've got these habits and I, I just don't seem to be able to do it because I want to have healthy relationships. For me, I, I'm addicted to worry. And you go, oh, well, I wish I could be a pastor and be addicted to worry, you know. But I want to tell you, there are things that are like cap, that what, what uh, Duhigg calls keystone or capstone habits and worry is one of them. When I worry, I start overworking. I start being cold to my wife. I start not showing up uh, in people's lives who I love because I don't. I think I have time to do that. Some of you tried that before. <laughs> um, anyways, let me close with this. The last lines of Ashley's book, 
I think, give a great witness to invitation, exaltation, and adoration. Here's what she says, and it doesn't spoil too much, but this is beautiful. She says, she's talking about leaving her apartment for the last time. She says, what stood out right then as I was adjusting my bag of clothes on my shoulder and getting ready to leave it all behind was just freedom. Somehow I felt free when I was in here that night, free to be myself. I could still feel God smiling on me. It was an amazing feeling. Somehow I'd made him proud. And all I cared about as I turned around to leave, all I could say was just, God, what can I do to make you smile again? Let's pray. God, you just delight in us. Your scripture teaches us that right now, this afternoon, there isn't a person in this room to whom you uh, don't say, I like you. I love you. I am crazy about you. That's what you say to us. You delight in us. And oh God, thank you for the powerful, cosmic life and death of Jesus Christ that's changed the equation forever. And now who invites us to step into freedom as his kingdom is coming into our lives, into this church, into this city, and into the world. We want to join that freedom fight. This is a very sacred moment for some of us. We do pray for this congregation right now that you'll be releasing hearts right now. That some people say, today is the day. This is the moment when I surrender to you, Jesus. Do that. We pray that we'll be the kind of community that aren't scared by people with all kinds of addictions. We actually invite them and welcome them and celebrate who they are the way you celebrate them. And they say, let us walk with you through your recovery. Because Jesus has come to set you free too. We pray that you'll do this to bring glory to your name. And that as we identify those broken parts of our lives and give you those brokenness, we face that cue today, tomorrow. You give us a new routine because we know that our reward now is nothing but to worship you and to ask you to be pleased with who we are and what we've done. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.